Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey friends, before we get started with this week's news, we want to let you know about something really fun and exciting at Book Riot. We are giving away 500 bones to the bookstore of your choice. That's right, a $500 gift card to whatever bookstore you choose, you have through June 21st to enter. But of course, you should run, not walk to get that done. So go to bookriot.com slash bookstore 500. That's the number 500 to enter. Bookriot.com slash bookstore 500. Enter to win $500 to any bookstore you want. Cross your fingers and toes. Bookriot.com slash bookstore 500. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 262, recording on Thursday, May 24th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. Rebecca, you slacked me that last, we just missed it, or it's coming up five years ago, we did the first one of these. Yes, five years ago. I think it was five years ago last week. Yeah. We did the first one. Uh, It feels appropriate to us to have missed our anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does, yeah. Uh, uh, and so, let's see, I, judging by two sixty-two episodes, I mean, we've done one dang near every week. I guess we there's a couple of Christmases that we mm-hmm. took a week off. Couple but like really, New we're, Year's we're pretty we close skipped. to every every week for two sixty-two. Yes, and almost all of them together. There's yeah, always a handful true. each year where we have a guest. You know, I need to go away so that things like Harper Lee's book getting released that was never released before can happen. Uh, that news only happens uh, when I'm gone away. Um, yeah, that's a been, tricky one. Um, it's been a good five I, years. I was going to say, if there's anything, you know, it's, we don't really do this kind of thing. And But the, but Book Expo is next week. And often mm-hmm. we have taken Book Expo as a time of like kind of our personal stock taking. We're not, neither of us are going this year, but like, you know, State of the Union time, Book Expo is when the industry in America comes together, mm-hmm. you know, kind of see how it is. A little bit different Book Expo this year. They're, they're kind of shrinking it down to make it more bookseller focused, which makes sense for a lot of reasons that are, I mean, frankly, that stuff is even too insider baseball for this podcast, yeah. but you know it's insider <laughs> which baseball. Which is really Which something. is really insider about, you know, read Expo strategy for BEA. Um, but, but super interesting. Um, I guess both you and, well, I just read it and you are in the grit throes of reading when by Daniel Pink in one of the yes. chapters, I don't know if you've gotten there yet is about the psychology, the effect of restarting, uh, you know, sort of re- finding a, a significant day as a time to consider, take new action, something like that. I think for five years on, I don't have a good list of like what we would do differently. I mean, I guess we could be smarter and funnier. I, that's a tough thing to say. <laughs> Right in general, <laughs> I used to want to write that on my students' papers. Like, this is a B. They want how do you be like an A and be like be smarter. Like that's be not smarter. that's not helpful. So I don't know. <laughs> Just do better. Yeah, I am not yet to that chapter mm. in when, but I will say I think the good like twenty minutes of nerdery that we had together offline about it the other yes. day counts as your anniversary <laughs> gift to me. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and now that I have started listening to it, I have 
already thoroughly annoyed Bob with like, did you know that mm-hmm. this is when this is when in the day we should be doing specific things? Um, so that's that's a gift. When too. by I, Daniel Pink for those of you who don't actually, we may have not even said that is yes. uh, in the Busman's MBA about tradition. The, uh, what the science of perfect timing, something like that, is the subtitle. Yeah, um, I think that the title doesn't do it any favors. And tr- I, I guess it moves units, but I, I think it's more interesting to think about like thinking about time in your daily life and other you know, macro events like you know you, you can't really t- you can't make timing happen but it's not really about that like certain times of day are yeah, better for certain things how our brain it's works it's about so so like you were explaining to me about you know that we really shouldn't drink coffee until we've been awake for an hour um or this well-known thing about not going to hospitals through the month yes, of july right. for reasons and, and he synthesizes something like 700 Mm -hmm. studies that have to do with how timing and like biological rhythms affect our mood and decision making and a whole bunch of stuff like if you got to go to court you better hope that you see the judge in the morning (laughs) Um, really fascinating anyway five years i don't know what i would do differently Mm. either um the things that people get mad at us about when I do have, you know, one drink too many and decide to look at the <laughs> iTunes reviews are things that, um, I, that I don't care that people no. are mad about. Cause no. it's all stuff like don't talk about diversity so much. Um, so yeah, no, I think it, I would not go back and listen to the first episodes for like all the money in the world, listening to stuff you made five years ago, reading stuff you made five years ago. It's like universally horrifying. Um, but I think, you know, younger Jeff and Rebecca probably were doing as best they could. Then yeah, too. I mean, the, the way we do the show hasn't changed that much. Frankly, Mm-mm. it's just a list of links. We don't take any notes. Uh, we don't, you know, talk, we don't. We generally don't talk about what we're going to talk about or what we're going to say about. It. In fact, we go out of our way if we're on the verge, on the cusp of frightful speech about spoiling <laughs> our hot take about something. We're like, save it for the show. Um, but other than that, not much has changed. I, I think we're a little more attuned to the. I don't know if attuned is quite the right word, but we have a better filter for what people may or may not be interested in, in addition mm-hmm. to what we're interested in. Sometimes we talk about something that we're interested in at length, knowing that it's not maybe the most interesting thing for other people, um, but we also have a good sense of what people want to talk about. Or, or you know, If there's a story we have yeah. to talk about, we know what those stories generally yeah, are. Yeah, I think you're right. We come to it now with, you know, we've always come to the show having done the reading. Like mm-hmm. we've, we've both looked at the links. We know what the topics are, but we don't discuss like our perspectives on them. We've had some surprising disagreements, I think, in the, in the past. <laughs> the things that I wasn't expecting yeah. us to disagree about. Um, and then there are always like the distinctions that no one cares about <laughs> except for us. Um, but the benefit I think we probably cannot underestimate the benefit of five additional years of talking and arguing with each other no probably not it's hard it would be hard to you know 262 reps is a lot or I guess minus you know 20 or so Mm -hmm. we uh, had other you know one of us was on or off Um, anyway we're come to that I mean you know, we do have a big story this week that we have to talk about. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute you probably know what it is if you're listening but Rebecca let's let's talk about our first wonderful yes Our first sponsor this week is Legendary by Stephanie Garber. This is coming from Flatiron Books, and it is the follow-up to Caraval, which was just a big, beautiful book last summer. I'm sure you all remember it. But after being swept up in the magical world of Caraval, Donatella Dragna has finally escaped her father and saved her sister Scarlet from a disastrous arranged marriage. The girls should be celebrating, but Tella isn't yet free. She made a desperate bargain with a mysterious criminal and the time to repay the debt 
has come. So as I said, this is the story that began with Caraval. It was a breakout New York Times bestseller that critics called spellbinding, wondrous, imaginative. I heard it tossed around as a read-alike for folks who liked The Night Circus. Um, so if you've been looking for something along those lines, mm. you might consider that as well. Um, and if you're looking to get into a new series over the summer... This is a good time to begin. You could pick up Caraval and Legendary. So again, that is Legendary by Stephanie Garber. It's out from Flatiron Books. You can find it wherever books are sold or click the link in our show notes. Uh, big story this week. Um, Philip Roth, the you know titan of mid-century, mid to late century, 20, uh, American letters died this week at the age of 85. Um, congestive, congestive heart failure. Uh, lived in New York. Um, interesting, I mean, a fascinating figure himself, lived through fascinating times. But I'd say the reaction to his death was also really interesting. I find a lot mm-hmm. of it uh, mirrored in my own reaction. I, I think, if I remember right from yesterday, have you read Broth before? Or are you just, yes. are you just out in general? Or what? what's... I've got complicated feelings, but why don't you go first? (laughs) I read American Pastoral in college in a class on the chief American writers of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And that was in probably 2003. So the 20th century had just ended. Um, It's really interesting to think about what the syllabus for that class might Mm -hmm. look like today with almost 20 years of reflection time and what the current political moment is. But that was my first exposure to him. I read The Human Stain a handful of years ago prior to Book Riot, but during my blogging career. So like mm-hmm. within the last decade, um, I've read The Human Stain and I have read something else. I've never okay. read Portnoy's Complaint because I feel like I heard all of the details about it before yeah. I ever got to it. Um, but I came to, I, I mean, having encountered him first in an first and almost entirely in an academic um, perspective academic environment, I think I can appreciate, I fall into the, like, I appreciate the significance of his work, especially at the time that he was working. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder about the long-term significance of it. And I don't, I don't have a lot of personal feelings yeah. about Philip Roth is where I am, but I know that that's not true for you. Well, I mean, I was saying in our, in our Slack yesterday, I, I think, I think I've read all the complete Roth corpus, like uh, at least the books. I'm, I'm sure there's essays and short stories and other things I've missed through the years. Um, but in terms of things that you would put on your shelf, I think I've read them all. Started out when I was a kid. I mean, it, it, Roth, weirdly, part of my, I think, long bookish origin story. I think I told this story on um, our dearly departed Reading Lives when I did a self-interview about that. But when I was 13, my, my uncle, my dad's brother, John, who was an English major, was moving, and he I was already a nerd reader at the time, um, but he gave me his box of college books that he'd been carrying around. And Mm -hmm. on the top of the pile, again, this could be the fog of memory has warped this, but my memory of it is on top was a paperback of Portnoy's Complaint has this electric, it's not electric yellow, but like a real banana, right banana yellow cover um, with black and red lettering. And I'd heard of Philip Roth before because, you know, uh, you know, I was starting to pay attention and going to Barnes & Noble or whatever and wandering around. You'd see Philip Roth number, novels on the cover. So I picked up Portnoy's Complaint, not really knowing what it was about. And boy, when you were a 13-year-old dude, <laughs> Portnoy's <laughs> Complaint boy. is... You got some... 
a revelation. I don't know if that's too strong <laughs> same, or not. You uh, don't want to take it as advice or how to, but there's some. But spicy I, I will business say there. there that you know of the many things Roth wrote about, um, a unveiling, a, a lifting of the veil of male sexual desire of a certain kind. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, was chief among them, and when you're 13 and just sort of figuring out and you know having feelings and things of that nature. It was both affirming, terrifying, uh, unbelievable, and otherwise. And so, emblazed upon my readerly mind <laughs> was that Roth was a, a writer to take seriously and could do things to you, mm-hmm. like you would you would have feelings and exposure. And that, and that became true in a lot of different work. I mean, very uh, a prolific writer, thirty novels, something like that, mm-hmm. um, in his career. So, a wide range. Um, I break them down in myself into several different kinds of books. Um, there, there's, and it's not neat separation, but there's the earlier works, especially though it continued through about, especially exploring what it meant to be a post-war American Jewish person, American Jewish writer, um, what ha- was happening to Jewish American identity right after World War II, especially of a certain social milieu. There's the there's, there's the formal experimentation stuff, um, Operation Shylock, the Ghost Drive, sort of the experimental Roth Sabbath Theater, things like that, and then there's the sweeping sort of cultural criticism Roth. Um, which is, you know, the human stain, American pastoral, the plot against America, things like that. And those aren't, those aren't, there aren't bright lines between those things. They meld in and out. But like, those are the three big areas I think, you know, you could take, you know, what, and then the question we were sort of banding about, I think a lot of people are wrestling with right now is, you know, for a long time, um, and even until the day he died, he was still probably the American most likely to win a Nobel Prize, though that mm-hmm. since Dylan won, it was going to be a while. And unfortunately, you know, I think the writing was on the wall, probably that it was going to happen for his lifetime. Um, but that status has faded over the last 20 years or so for reasons that I think are really interesting. Um, some of, I mean, this is what happens to writers who are radical about certain things is if history catches up, they no longer seem that radical. Uh, to some degree, like writing mm-hmm. about sex with frankness and honesty and you know explicitness in literary settings is not as radical as it was in you know what Portnoy was I think nineteen seventy three something like that um and then the Ameri- the 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 cultural landscape stuff of the human stain or american pastoral it 's different now. America's not the same as it was in what I think America was first like 1998, something like that. It, you mm-hmm. know, it's radically different now. Um, so that kind of stock taking is maybe an interesting snapshot in a moment in time, but I'm not sure it ages especially well. I think the things that will age especially well from a sheer readerly pleasure point of view is the formal experimentation stuff. Like I think Operation Shylock is going to be a book you can read in 40 years and be interested in what he's doing on the page. Um, I think it's also a mistake, uh, you know, I'm not Jewish myself, so I, I can only imagine that for American Jews, especially American literary Jews, people who are interested in Jewish literary culture, a titanic figure um, in America, um, writing about a particular time when Jewish identity was radically changing in America after World War II. And Roth himself had, an, I think, ambivalent is maybe uh, putting, not too, putting too fine a point on it with what he, ex, you know, his family was expecting him to do, what he understood, what he wanted for his own personal freedom, um, and also a real turn to interiority in fiction, where Roth was always sort of writing about himself, or a lot of the time was sort of writing about himself, in a variety of guises and forms and refractions and reflections, um, 
which I, you know, which is, which is interesting. But I, I guess my, my, my general theory of how the canon holds up over time is you've got the, the stuff that really, really lasts. And we're talking centuries here. And this is a super high bar. So this is no besmirchment mm-hmm. of Ron Roth is things that are historically important, but that also still give pleasure to an individual reader on its own merits. You know, I'm thinking Pride and Prejudice, right? Interesting in its time, but also still a great read right now. Um, and I'm just not sure what, if any, of Roth's work will pass both of those that's sort of important for its time, mm-hmm. literary, historical importance, but then also steps out of time to be interest, interesting on its own merits, if that makes Does that make sense to you, what I'm trying, yeah, to, yeah. That, what I'm trying it, to say there? It does make sense. And I think where Roth sits right now in the American canon, especially in the context of like this very recent political moment and what's happening in the culture around women's stories, especially is a lot of um, like that. We've had centuries of focus on the male experience and focus on male stories and the kinds of stories that Philip Roth told you're right. Were like brand new in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and revolutionary. Um, Jason diamond wrote a great piece for Rolling Stone about how like what Philip Roth did. The thing that really made him brilliant was the, the way in which he made American readers uncomfortable Yes, um, and how comfortable he was making people uncomfortable that he really had a a special talent for that. But there's sort of a decentering of stories about the white male experience um, because they have been in the center for so long. And so I think that this is like, this is a particular moment where being an old white guy who dies doesn't earn you quite the um, rush of people, like the flood of people going to pick up your books or consider that you might be read centuries from now as it would have five or 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Um, Hopefully there will be, you know, continued attention to women's stories as well. And then some sort of swing back to some kind of equilibrium mm-hmm. um, where we can look at the full, like sort of the full canon and expand it to include all kinds of stories. But I think you're right that um, it's hard to, it's really hard to know right now yeah. where Roth will sit. Um, and the, the responses that I've seen, and I'm sure that some of this is a product of, you know, my personal social media landscape um, where people being like, that's it. America's greatest writer has died. Like the, (laughs) the era of great literary writers is over. And to that eye and many people say, well, Toni Morrison is still alive. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. (laughs) war. I mean, just give me, I mean, we don't, that's, it's kind of such a ridiculous statement. It's not even worth saying, but of a certain seventies, I mean, when you think of the novel in America as being the cultural thing, Roth and Roth was the figure of that. Yes, right. I mean, and he's he and Wolf. I mean, Wolf not just a novel. I mean, a a fiction writer, but like Roth was probably the apotheosis of like that era and time. And and I do want to. I do want to. I don't know if it's reminding or just stay, but like. Jewishness and whiteness here is not exactly the same thing. True. And I think some people are conflating the two. I, and Roth's work itself suggests that's not that simple. So I don't know. I, I hope people, I hope, I hope history doesn't sweep him under the rug unless it wants to, right? Unless, mm-hmm. unless it, and really in the full accounting of mm-hmm. his works, like, you know, there's a lot of writers and a lot of people do stuff. And not everyone gets remembered forever. Roth's in the conversation. I just don't think. I just don't know um, that it's going to be the case. Now, 
I, I, I imagine if I was alive in, say, I think F. Scott Fitzgerald died in what, 1941, 43, something like that. If you had told me at that time that the great Gatsby was going to last, because it feels very much of its time. Like mm-hmm. there's a world in which American pastoral has a sort of great Gatsby thing going on of capturing a, a, a moment in time that does it so well and with such skill and insight that it does transcend the particular moment that it, that it comes out of. Maybe that will be the case. We're probably too close to judge. You know, my general thinking is you need 20 years. Um, you need more. I, that's too short uh, for something mm-hmm. like this, especially. So I, I don't know, but I think that's one thing I would give. I, I would press maybe the pump the brakes on the the day of the white male writer is over as being the primary story and and recognize for Roth that that formulation of an identity wasn't that simple. And it yeah. wasn't then, especially when Goodbye Columbus came out in, I think, 1954, uh, still today, it's not that simple. So that's that's a wrinkle to that particular thing. I'm not saying you're wrong, Rebecca. I hope you're not hearing that. But just like, oh, yeah, that's no, a piece that's, of what's going on. I think that is actually an important distinction yeah. here that um, that we're not talking about like John Updike. We're not talking right. about Saul yeah. Bellow. We're not right. talking about stories that were specifically about like middle class white male mm-hmm. angst, um, but that the Jewish experience is different in very meaningful ways. Um, Jason Diamond's piece in Rolling Stone gets to some of that yeah. as well. So I'll drop we'll a link, link that to that in the show notes. notes. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely um, worth picking up too or adding to to your reading as you're doing this but i do think that's that's sort of like the the that's the tone of the messaging that i have seen yeah, around this so far fair, is kind right. of like um that it's in the water right now to be kind of like oh another old white guy died mm-hmm. um who cares let's talk about other stories and like i am sometimes in that boat uh, yeah. but i do think that what roth's work did especially in the time that he was working and writing was critical and revolutionary in a lot of ways and different from just the mm-hmm. white male experience. Um, so I'm glad that you made that distinction. Yeah. If you're looking Sometimes to pick up I am one, wrong. if you're looking, well, you're not wrong. I'm just, I just, <laughs> yeah. I think you were accurately this capturing not one of them. Yeah. Some of the door- discourse that's happening mm-hmm. around, especially the, the Twitter. There, you don't have much space, and especially if you haven't read Roth. You know, like that's an easy kind of um, index card. It's, thing sure, I think to serve, that's yeah. Certainly a thing that I have seen a lot is like, well, I've never read him and why should I care? Because yeah. just another old white guy. And it is more nuanced than that in this situation. If you're interested in caring or deciding whether or not you care and you haven't read Roth, I would recommend Goodbye Columbus. It's a novella with short stories. Um, it was his first book. Um, and if you don't care, don't read Roth. But if you do care from there, you know, maybe explore some of the other ones. But it's, 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 it's short. I mean, so you know, you can get through it. And I think a lot of what makes Roth important for the time is in that book. Um, you know, some of the stuff really hasn't aged well, like the Zuckerman truly really hasn't aged well. I think Goodbye Columbus holds up pretty well. I think American Pastoral and Operation Shylock hold up pretty well. Um, but he did so much that, you know, there's going to be some standouts among the work. But that, that would be my rec. And I, I, think, I think decide for yourself whether or not to care. Um, I, 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 could, I guess that's where I am. I, could, I can see the wind blow either way mm-hmm. towards, you know, ultimately... A, an important for his time, but not in all time. Or maybe he maybe he joins Fitzgerald and Hemingway and some of the, the titans of American letters of the 20th century. I, I don't know. We'll see. Um, but it's interesting. Whereas someone like uh, Harper Lee, it's almost like it's a little bit easier to understand because there was the one book. Right. I mean, just it's mm-hmm. a, it's almost a, interesting. Like you're not actually judging Harper Lee or judging To Kill a Mockingbird. With Roth, it's the opposite. You've got so many. There's so, that, and I also that, like that's this crazy. Is- 
we've gone down the Harper Lee road yeah. several times on, on this show as well, but I would be, I'm, I would be interested in and almost surprised to find that to kill a mockingbird still shows up as yeah. really important in another generation. I think it's going to be um, like uncle's Tom's cabin, which is, it was mm-hmm. an important historical work, but like reading it in 50 years, you're gonna be like, okay, I get it. But like my particular pleasure of this text reading experience yeah. for me now is not going to be, hold up like something like, you know, Pride and Prejudice or Shakespeare or something right. else like that does. Um, and pleasure is a complicated term. I don't mean just that, but like edification, enjoyment, whatever, um, interest. Uh, yeah, it's it's an in, it's a conflicted moment for me. I mean, I don't know Philip Roth. He had stopped writing, so like I've made this point too. Artistically, he was sort of done, so I don't have like a a thing which I would have some other writers will I will not name for fear of bringing down the thing upon the high of the place to jinx it, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have that kind of Knock reaction. all the wood. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it is a moment to take stock. Uh, and someone's very important in my own reading life. I, I mean, there's no way around that. Um, but how to deal with recognizing his flaws and blindnesses that every writer has. It does feel, though, there's something about where we are in the culture right now, especially on the literary left, let's put it that way, where his blindnesses seem especially glaring at this moment. Um, So I don't think there's any doubt about that. So anyway, um, if you've read Roth, let me know. Podcast at bookriot.com if you've got thoughts or feelings. (laughs) Jeff will respond to your emails for so many years about this. Yeah, I know. We'll just have an ongoing uh, uh, Rothathon. Uh, Mara Roth. Um, yeah, you know, I think right. to uh, let's talk about more things happening on the literary left. Yeah, um, take this one. Take us away. So Sean Spicer, former White House press secretary, he who hid in bushes and lied about the attendance at uh-huh. the president's inauguration, has a new book coming out, and he is kicking off the tour for it at Book Expo next week, um, presumably because... Book Expo thinks that this will get butts in seats and or advertising money was exchanged. I am not clear. I don't have the details on how like how the headline events of Book Expo are arranged. Um, the book is coming out from Simon and Schuster. One can only assume that the marketing budget for it is enormous and I have received emails from Book Expo trying to entice me to attend the event based on the fact that Sean Spicer Mm. will be speaking, which seems to me to be a huge misreading of what the literary, what the like publishing world cares about in general. Like did anyone in the world of publishing decide to go to book expo because Sean Spicer was going to be there? Um, this is publishing tends to be pretty liberal. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm, I'm confused about this. Um, I want to give all of the usual caveat explanations about the fact that like an event deciding not to host an author is not the same thing as censorship. Um, (laughs) And I want to note uh, that there's a bookseller. So the the upshot of this big piece, there's a bookseller named Josh Cook. um, And he writes, uh, he writes a blog. He has published some things on Melville House uh, and just an interesting guy. I do know him a little bit personally. He is leading sort of a counter protest or leading a protest to counter this event because he believes, and I agree with him, um, that it's disgusting to give Sean Spicer a platform just at all, um, but especially a celebrated platform in the world of literature, which is intended to interrogate and educate and inform and tell the truth. Um, So there is a very long piece on the Melville House blog about what he's doing, but essentially um, Josh Cook has organized a counter event with the notion of 
that the best thing that could happen during Sean Spicer's event at BEA is for there to be no one Mm. in attendance. Um, So after speaking with other booksellers and talking to representatives from the American Booksellers Association, um, what he settled on would be encouraging folks to attend a different program, which happens to be on surviving sexual assault and is occurring um, just before or with some overlap into the time that Spicer is going to be speaking elsewhere. So he's saying, come and attend this event that's instead about sexual assault, stay in this space afterwards rather than going anywhere else and Mm -hmm. rather than going into Sean Spicer's event. Um, It gives people an active way to avoid giving Spicer an audience, and it also gives like-minded booksellers um, who are the intended audience of Book Expo an opportunity to gather together and to discuss um, these kinds of things. He says, at the very least, I don't want the book world to just shrug its shoulders, um, which I think is notable and to be applauded. And also I agree. Um, There is a Facebook event for this protest that um, Josh Cook has also encouraged, even if you're not attending Book Expo, um, you can click attending on this Facebook event and it will, you know, the measure of people who click on that is just one indicator of people who people from the world of books and reading who don't care to support Book Expo inviting a figure like Sean Spicer to take the state to take one of the largest stages at the publishing world's flagship event. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was really head scratchy when I first heard that Sean Spicer was going to be at BEA, but like publishing does weird things. Book Expo has a history of featuring uh, some featuring authors sort of of Spicer's ilk in the name of like fair and balanced <laughs> um, being fair and balanced. And I use that. Uh, those words intentionally, Um, but to be so tone deaf as to think that advertising Spicer's speaking engagement as a way to get the, get the world of publishing Mm -hmm. to be interested in and to support book expo is very confusing to me. Like I feel like, okay, if I'm, I am the intended audience of BEA in many ways um, and you just got it super wrong. Uh, So If you would like to support this endeavor, you can click on the Facebook listing uh, that'll be in the show notes and say that you will be attending as an act of support for there being an empty room for Sean Spicer. Um, If you're going to be EA and you would like to participate in person, you will have this information as well. So I just, you know, part one of Hero of the Week this week goes to Josh Cook. Um, Happy to see booksellers able to organize in this way at the biggest publishing event of the year. Um, Many booksellers that we've talked about for the last year or so have been doing things in their stores and sort of individual campaigns that support various organizations or highlighting different voices. And um, this is an opportunity for the like ground troops of publishing to really make a statement. A curious decision. Um, you know, my, my logician's mind is sort of doing a, a decision tree of like how this could have come out mm-hmm. working backwards. I mean, there's sort of, I guess the central question you're mulling is, did Read Expo do this because they wanted to and wanted to being for reasons about, you know, they think it's actually going to draw a crowd, it's good for the event, so on and so forth. Or are they doing it because of meta entanglements with the big five, you know, with Simon and Schuster, especially like this is a thing. Read Expo cannot, um, you know, I'm putting cannot in quotation marks, but they, they deem it that they cannot say no 
to a request, a buy, a placement, or whatever else it's going to be, even if it's just we want space for this thing because we bought the booth and you said we get whatever, like they're not in a position to say, we think this is a bad idea, we don't want to support this, so on and so forth. Like th- th- that's really the central question, I guess, right? Is mm-hmm. are they doing this? Like they say, yeah, this, we think this is going to be interesting and we're, we're boosting on purpose because we think it's going to add to the whatever of the whatever. That seems both bad and wrong you know, at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the other decision, I can sort of, I think it's unfortunate and nettlesome, but I kind of get it, right? Like they depend on booksellers coming here to talk to publishers. So they need publishers to get there. Publishers also spend a huge amount of money. It's a horribly expensive event to put on. And if SNS pulls out, suddenly it's less you know, interesting for booksellers to come to, which then maybe H or, you know, I can sort of get that. I think, I think maybe I'd like to know that they fought or something a little bit. Does that make sense as a distinction? Yeah, like I want to know, like, for what reasons to be mad at the different parties involved, (laughs) basically. Because in that case, it would be Simon and Schuster that we'd be like, what are you doing? This is not the right place. I mean, whatever, you can publish the book, I guess, but come on. Like, did Simon & Schuster strong-arm Reed Expo into featuring Sean Spicer? Did Reed approach Simon & Schuster to get this because they thought it would be a good idea? Like, did two people just have a bad idea committee meeting and decide that this sounded great for reasons? Um, Like, who has misunderstood the audience of this event and why and in which ways are all questions that I have. Like, never mind that... uh, after Sean Spicer's behavior, giving him like a, what I assume to be a very high dollar value book deal and platform to like get to go on a redemption tour, um, is uh, looks to me to be just a money grab by a publisher. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, like, as you've said, I can imagine many ways that this occurred, but I would, I would love to know, um, how it occurred. If you are a little birdie who happens Mm. to know and would like to remain anonymous, we'd be happy to do that for you. You can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. And if you attend BEA and go to this, um, protest, attend the counter event, we'd love to hear about that as well. Is this going to be the the highest ranking person from the, the sort of the Trump lieutenants um, that actually serve in the White House to come out, the first book? I think so. Um, yeah, my secondary interest I, is, that, yeah. is that thing going to sell? Like, is it going to sell Comey mm. numbers? Is it going to sell Fire and Fury numbers? Is it going to sell at all? Like, right. My brain know. was just like, you know, we're still in the glut of Obama staffer memoirs and it's not time yet for Trump mm. administration memoirs, but they're going, they're burning through folks so fast I was going to say, there's going like, to be people with had, uh, a lot of time on their hands. He's had time to work there, get fired, and write a book about it, and we're not even two years into even, this Not thing even yet. two years into it. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. Um, uh, it's fascinating to see. It is, from a PR place alone like even if we just do it that it seems like a very odd choice it is very very odd choice like was reed expo surprised when booksellers started planning a protest of this event what did they think was going to happen like Mm -hmm. did they think i was going to click on that email about sean spicer and be like yes i would like to attend your event now Uh, it's very i have many questions uh let's move along here um something i'm interested in uh Again, reboots, adaptations, there's so many. It takes an unusual one to to turn my head a little bit. This one did. 
Um, Damon Lindelhoff, who I guess is probably best known for, I don't know what's he best, The Lost? Lost. Lost, being involved in Lost. Um, and The Leftovers. Is behind a pilot at HBO for a reboot of Watchmen, um, the canonical, maybe the, the, the most famous, the most lauded graphic novel ever written um, by Alan Moore and illustrated by Dave Gibbons which was turned into a much maligned uh, movie that was directed by Zack Snyder, which I thought was actually okay. It wasn't great or anything, but a, a fantastic graphic novel um, that comments on the superhero trope itself. Um, and the more, I mean, Infinity War, and there's more and more, like, we're 19 Marvel movies alone into the superhero thing. Um, I think it'd be an interesting thing to do. The casting was announced, which has a couple of interesting things. One is that there's going to be new characters and new storylines, so it's not going to be just a retelling of the narrative that's in the Watchmen graphic novel, which, if you don't know, is a, a, a finite set. It's not like X-Men, which has gone a million years. Like it, It's a complete, in-itself story. Um, but we got some casting, but we don't know who they are. And they're giving Regina King the headline spot, which I don't know mm-hmm. what to make of that. Um, there aren't that many female characters, but there are a couple of major ones. Um, Silk Spectre is the one. It would be a little unusual, though possible, for Silk Spectre to become the main character. I wonder if we're, she's, he's going to gender bend mm. one of the other characters. She could be Ozymandias. She could be some of the other people and, and put a thing on it. Don Johnson, Tim Blake Nelson, Louis Gossett Jr., Adelaide Clemens, and Andrew Howard. Like I can kind of guess the, who those people might be. I would think Don Johnson would be Night Owl and Tim Blake Nelson would be Rorschach and Louis Gossett Jr. would be the comedian. Like I could see that Regina King as Silk Spectre is possible, but I think there's maybe another shoe to drop in what how this thing is going to be. Um, also, she, she uh, Regina King, I guess I know her, but I, I like Southland, which was, a, you watched The Leftovers and like that, which I haven't seen that she was mm-hmm. in. Um, and Lindelhoff and Teron Parada created that. And so I guess... Lindelhoff knows her especially well from The Leftovers, so that's interesting. So we don't know. Um, so he said, it'll not be a retelling from the original graphic novel, but rather a new story in the same world, which I think is a fascinating way to go. It could go either way. Um, I'm glad HBO is doing it. Um, it this needs to be cable <laughs> for a variety yeah. of reasons I don't want to go into at the particular moment. Um, but I think a really interesting thing to, to watch out for, I'm fascinated to see, of the, of the mm-hmm. comic book adaptations Watchmen's one that gets my attention, but this way really gets my attention. So I'll be I'll be interested to see. Yeah, I'm interested based on casting alone mm-hmm. here. I saw the Watchmen movie. I've never read the book, um, so I don't have a lot of atta- any attachment really at all to the content or the characters. But I'd be open to seeing it. I think Lindelof really excels at the, or he's happiest, most at home with the interesting mess mm. and uh, lost. Did not go the way that I wanted it to go, but was a fun, interesting mess to watch. Yes, the the leftovers um, was interesting and beautiful, and I think more intentionally messy mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I really appreciated. Um, I think that's a and also a very creative way to take the world of the novel that Tom Parada wrote and expand it and build it out in 
unexpected and surprising and gorgeous and difficult ways. Um, so uh, having seen him do that one time um, with material that I was familiar with gives me more interest here in what might happen with this case of not the same story, but within the world of the story. Um, HBO, I think, is also a great place to put Damon Lindelof. Um, and Regina King was remarkable on was the she? Leftovers. Yeah, yeah, she was great. I think she's she gives, great. I just haven't seen her in that one. Yeah, so... Leftovers uh, over? Is it... Is it done? Yeah, like it, was, it was just two... I think it was just okay. two seasons, maybe three. Oh, okay. um, and it ended last year or yeah. early this year. I don't remember. It's done. Um, it's It was really beautiful. Um, yeah. I really enjoyed it. That's on my long list of TV shows I probably will never make to, but you know, you never know. Yeah, lots of... Uh, as happens with Damon Lindelof, lots of arguing about whether the finale was yeah. good or not. <laughs> um, but just like some of the, I'm just going to talk about TV for a minute. Some mm. of the most stunning performances that I've seen on TV in the last few years. And that is saying something um, like since Mad Men and Breaking Bad went off the air, I think some of the performances in the leftovers are among the best performances that I've seen. Cool. We got another sponsor. It's us. So you've heard us talk about annotated. So I wrote up talking points that are going to appear on some of the other book riot shows to promote the show. So I'm going to I'm going to do my ad read. Rebecca hasn't seen it, and she's going to she's going to rate how how well <laughs> oh, I did the talking points. Good, give me, I'm excited about. Give this. me a rating. So here's here's if you, a little show called Annotated. So here we go. Ready? Are you ready, Rebecca? I'm ready. All right. This episode of the Book Riot podcast is brought to you by our own Annotated Podcasts. Annotated is an audio documentary podcast series about books, language, and reading. Episodes range from 15 to 25 minutes long and cover a whole range of bookish topics. Past episodes have covered how J.P. Morgan's personal librarian became the most glamorous librarian in the world, and she guarded a dangerous secret for her whole life. It also includes, We've also talked about the wild story of how 1984 came to be written and how the CIA got involved in it. Also, we did an exploration of why we care so much about the Oxford comma that began unexpectedly, with a love story, a very nerdy love story. So <laughs> if you like podcasts like This American Life, Planet Money, or 99% Invisible, we think you're going to love Annotated, and not just because that's what we were going for. Here are what some reviewers are saying about Annotated over on Apple Podcasts. Okay, here. This is from Kristen A. 123 This podcast is everything I want in a bookish version of This American Life. All right, and here's uh, A.K. Burke. This podcast fills a gap in my listening life that I didn't even know was there. And this, finally, from the excellently named reviewer, Otters and Puffins. <laughs> Annotate is one of the most fascinating and informative podcasts I've ever come across. I can think of few shows that offer such wonderful combination of information, storytelling, insight, and fun. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there with what Otters and Puffins said. They can, ha they can have the last word. So you can go download Annotate for free on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks so much to us for sponsoring us today. That's Annotated the Podcast. What do you <laughs> think how I do? Inception. You did well. Yeah. I mean, any ad spot that includes a username for otters and puffins. I know. Even if they said something excellent. crappy about Annotated, I needed to use it, probably, just because if, you're, if your handle is otters and, and puffins, we got I was, all the I think I was, um, I was missing some examples from the current season. Oh, I love, okay, yeah. Those were season I love, one. At, yeah. I love the current season of uh, the show. I think we're hit, we've really hit our stride um, in in doing it. But I, that was good, Jeff. Good job. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. You're so welcome. Thing, uh, <laughs> so, so, so endeth my fishing for compliments session. Uh, I will do say, a couple, oh, what, what, what? I was going to say, I think if you are a fan as we are of the, Hey, did you know game annotated mm, gives you like real mm, good ammunition. <laughs> that is true. For that. We might um, even go, to, we may even go out of our way to include, Hey, did you know things? 
in each mm-hmm. episode just to make sure we got a couple. Yeah, little um, tasty little nuggets of yeah. bookish goodness. All right, let's uh, mop up. We got a few... Potpourri. The, the, the C section is always sort of the potpourri section of the, yes. the, the show. Uh, yeah. I, and first week in a long time, we haven't had to do Me Too follow up. Oh, so God. You're right. We didn't. I should find some wood to We probably just didn't that. see it. There's just too much. We just. Yeah. Also, wood is the traditional fifth anniversary gift. So I was thinking oh. about finding you a big wooden wheel from a ship for our wheelhouse as our fifth anniversary celebration so let's just that yeah okay i see it took me a minute to get there but i see where you're going with that just All right. the I, captain you know. of the ship steering with the wheelhouse one of those, okay. one anyway. of those big those big ones yeah, potpourri potpourri <laughs> potpourri um audible announced this week that they are partnering with reese witherspoon's hello sunshine which is a cross-platform media brand that's dedicated to producing female-driven content um it sounds like there are going to be several stages of this partnership collaboration whatever you want to call it but the first is the launch coming in June of Reese's book club, Hello Sunshine on Audible, which is going to spotlight distinctive audio performances featuring strong female characters. It's an extension of Reese's book club, which happens online and she announces the selections on Instagram. Um, But the uh, Reese's book club, oh, and there's a site for it as well, but Mm. the site shares author Q&A and does giveaways and there's book discussion opportunities. And under the new deal, Audible is going to make available to its subscribers the coordinating audio edition Hmm. of her monthly book club pick. Um, Most of the titles that she's selected, if not all, I haven't Googled to check all, but I would kind of guess they all already were available Mm. on audio. She's picking big, interesting stuff like Celeste Ng's new book, Little Fires Everywhere. There's a new Curtis Sittenfeld uh, title that she's been looking into. So I'm not sure that this is actually new content um, to Audible for this part, but there'll be marketing existing Audible content and existing titles through the lens of Reese Witherspoon selected this for her book club. And then they're going to work together to develop original audio productions under Mm. the Audible original by Hello Sunshine banner, which should have its first title out later this year. Um, I think one of the more interesting stories about actresses coming into the world of books and reading like we've several uh, women are becoming well known for uh, selecting titles and sort of running online book clubs sarah jessica parker has an imprint emma watson does a thing Mm. um but reese witherspoon really has taken the mission she gave herself to bring female driven stories front and center very seriously she's doing it on screen and she's um doing it with books and so this this is a smart partnership i think that makes a lot of sense Seems yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. The thing I don't get about Audible Originals, do they not become print books too? It just seems like a weird thing to like have mm. a dig, an audio only version of a thing that some people might be interested. Do you see what I'm getting at? Like I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Do you what, also get like an Amazon publishing deal? Yeah, I don't. I don't understand because like we know uh, downloadable audio is a growing thing, but it's still dwarfed by print. But also, you know, smaller than ebook alone. It seems. So if you're Reese Witherspoon, I guess maybe you don't have, maybe you're not super worried about capturing the the the, the, the ebook market version for these things. I guess is Audible paying a premium to sort of cover the lost revenue that makes mm. it worth it to not also sort of do a full spread? I shouldn't. Why do I? Why do I say things like that? To sort of do a full <laughs> spectrum, uh, you know, a publishing full compliment. In, like what you would expect from a modern book being published by not a small press, right? Which is you have an ebook, you have an audio, and you have a print. Mm-hmm. Like it just seems. Just seems like it would be strange because there's maybe Audible is going to pay Reese enough that if you want this story, you've got to try it. You got to get the audiobook, and like it's a it's a 
customer acquisition sort of play, expand the market well, kind of play? Well, and it says original audio productions. It doesn't necessarily say audio books. So I guess it could be like women-driven podcasts. Yeah, I guess that would make things. sense. Yeah, that would make sense. That would make sense. Did the Audible podcast play, which we talked about, I don't know, when we had Ashley Ford on a mm-hmm. couple years ago. Couple she years was. Back. I don't think she's doing that anymore. That feels like that's been backburnered. Is that your sense of it too? Like the Audible mm-hmm. channels thing? I wonder how the that stuff is going. Audible's yeah. play to get beyond just sort of audiobook downloads to be really an audio content provider writ large. Uh, I'm not sure how that's going. I haven't heard as much about it. Yeah, I feel like I heard a lot about it when they launched the channels and the original shows. And then I just haven't heard much about it since purely mm-hmm. from an anecdata perspective. But there's nobody among like the Book Riot readers, yeah. the insiders, the staff contributors, like folks that I talk to on a regular basis who consume a lot of audio content. I'm not hearing like, oh, did you hear the latest episode of this mm-hmm. thing that runs on Audible? Uh, so I That's don't know. interesting. All right. Um, where do you want to go? We'll get to do one let's, more. Let's do a quick, uh, let's do a quick Heroes of the yeah. Week. Because we, we need all the heroes we can get. A nonprofit in Westchester, Pennsylvania is bringing libraries to laundromats. They're called the Laundromat Library League. Um, It was organized almost four years ago. They now have 215 volunteers that stock 64 different sites throughout Mm. the state of Pennsylvania and 112 places in other states with children's books. So when kids are hanging out while their parents are doing laundry, rather than like riding around in the cart or playing a game on their mom or dad's phone, um, kids can pick up a book to read. Each book has a sticker that says, read it, love it, pass it on. And they're intended for kids to enjoy and, Mm. and to share. Um, that's kind of all there is to it. There's a lot of um, interesting details about the founding of this organization. Um, but we've seen stuff over the last few years about people sort of looking for public places where, you could be reading, but you aren't, um, and mm. using those as access, especially to promote literacy with kids. Like um, barbershops, barbershops we saw, yeah, that right. we saw a couple of years ago. Um, JetBlue did a thing where they were putting vending machines of children's books out in different cities. Um, I talked to somebody who was doing that a, a year or two ago, as well. So I just like this is very creative and smart to think about where else do kids go where they're like wasting time or waiting mm. for a thing to happen. Um, you know. I, one of the big nonprofits, I think it's Reach Out and Read, like a huge literacy nonprofit is focused on um, using doctor's offices. Like they give yeah. books to doctors to give to parents and kids during appointments. Um, but these sort of other spots like the laundromat, like car dealerships or like car repair <laughs> places DMV. would be a good one. Yes. <laughs> like big public places where mm. you got to go and waste some time waiting for a thing to happen. But filling those spots with books and um, giving kids access to books in a creative way. So my hat is off to you, yeah. Laundromat Library League. Thank you for warming my heart. It makes week. it makes me wonder if you go the opposite direction, like could libraries, you know, th- this move towards, and this is a bigger story that some, you know, maybe it's worth an annotated episode at some mm. point of sort of the the evolving role of the library, but these moves to think of the library as kind of a de facto community center, community services that has books and information services, but does other kinds of things, whether it has Mm. study spaces, you know, multimedia rooms, other kinds of things. It kind of makes me wonder if like 
maybe a new if you're building a new library branch, like have a laundromat on the side of it or something is interesting. Ooh. Like you know, I, that seems that doesn't seem dumb to me. Suddenly, like this makes a lot of sense. I'd never thought about the laundromat as sort of a weird interstitial space where you go there and you're sort of waiting, right? Like that's really <laughs> what you're doing. Why not pop over the library? Uh, while you're waiting for the the delicate cycle to to finish, I don't know. It seems interesting to me too. Um, anyway, just a quick thought. That's a really good story. I like that. Yeah, good heartwarming story this week. Um, Shout out to the Chester County them. chapter of the American Association of University Women, which helps collect uh, some of the forty five thousand books donated Ooh, during the past yes. three and a half years. Awesome. That's our show this week. You can find uh, show notes. We talk. We include all the links um, to the stories we talked about this week at bookriot.com slash listen. You can navigate to Book Riot there. Thanks to Legendary by Stephanie Garber for sponsoring this week's show and to us for sponsoring us. Annotate the podcast will be linked. You can find it there. Go check it out. I, the one that's dropping on Monday. Ooh, I love this one. It's a very Book Riot podcast story. It's very sweet. Very sweet. I think you will like that. If you're uh, a fan of Parks and Rec, you're going to like it Libraries, too. <laughs> democracy, the whole thing. Uh, it's all there for you. Um, you can check that out. Uh, Rebecca? Thank you. Have a good one. Talk to you later.